are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hey, feisties. Okay, so I have this thing where I'll get done with a ride, and I'll toss my leg off my bike, and I immediately have to pee like a racehorse. (laughs) So I'm standing there in my driveway, kegling like mad, trying not to cross my legs and hold myself like a grade schooler while I'm fumbling with the keypad to the garage, hoping that I can make it the 50 steps or so through the garage, into the house, and into the bathroom on the other side of the door without wetting myself. That is about as fun as it sounds. Well, this week's guest is Chloe Murdoch, and she specializes in treating endurance athletes with orthopedic and pelvic floor dysfunction. And when I told her what was happening to me, she knew exactly what was going on. It's called urge incontinence. It's pretty common during menopausal years, and she explained why it happens and what to do about it. And we also talked about the other really common form of incontinence that happens during these years, uh, stress incontinence. That's the one where you pee a little bit when you sneeze or you cough or you, you know, do jump rope or go for a long run. Very common, not normal, and not necessary. Uh, she, she is a wealth of knowledge. Chloe was really great to talk about pelvic floor health and core strength and how these things are related. She is a physical therapist, a running coach, a strength and conditioning coach, and a bike fitter based in Zurich, Switzerland. She she was really, again, just a wealth of knowledge. I thought I knew a lot about core strength and, and all the topics surrounding it, and I, I learned that I, I didn't know that much. So I hope you'll enjoy this one. It's, it's super useful if you, like me, find yourself sort of struggling with a little bit of those incontinence issues. But we also talk about more than that. You know, we talk about joint health and muscle health and posture, and, and it, this is a good one. Before we get into it, I have a couple of quick housekeeping notes. One is a reminder that Stacey Sims is offering her Menopause for Athletes course again. The course starts November 15th, so that's coming up. You can get all the details and sign up at drstacysims.com backslash menopause is coming. And the second is a reminder that we have that new private Facebook group. It's called the Menopause Feisties, and it's it's been super cool. It's growing fast. And it's really filled with all these amazing women from all around the world. We have rock climbers and mountain bikers and runners and yogis and crossfitters, you name it. It's been really inspiring to watch women helping each other and share their stories. Come in and join us. It's it's a really positive, productive place to be. We're also offering a series of live Q&A sessions every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern for the next couple of months. And how that's working is we're basically collecting your questions on a particular topic. Last week, we did sleep. The week before that, we did training. And we answer them during that session. So come join us. It's been awesome. To join the group, you can search for the Menopause Feisties on Facebook, or just check the show notes. We'll put a link in there. Okay, that's it for the housekeeping from me this week. Let's get on with the show. (music) 
I feel like this is a hugely, hugely, hugely important topic for mm-hmm. our women. And even women who are sort of open to talking about a lot of things don't necessarily want to talk about this, right? They don't necessarily want to talk about urinary incontinence and not being able to run without wetting themselves. And, you know, like, I think, I think it's still a little tough for women mm-hmm. to talk about. And I, I, it's so common. I think we just need to, to just be upfront, right? And, and just talk about what it is, what women can do, the you know, pelvic mm-hmm. floor in general of that health. So why don't we start with that basic? Because I think a lot of people have this notion that the pelvic floor is really just like, this thing, you know, under the uterus and you, you know, helps you not pee and whatever. But like, talk us a little bit through like, what is the pelvic floor? Like, what does it stretch to and from? And is it just a muscle? Yeah, so that's, that's a very good question. I mean, the pelvic floor is made up of three separate layers of muscles and tendons. Uh, the tendons connect muscle to bone. And so they essentially form that, you know, those three layers form a shallow bowl at the base of the pelvis. And so, you know, the the pelvic floor has a couple important functions. Um, The pelvic floor provides mechanical support to the contents of the abdomen and the pelvis, so to our organs above. Uh, The pelvic floor helps to maintain uh, continence, and so it controls how and when we go to the bathroom. Uh, It's part of the core, which athletes, uh, you know, it's a big buzzword, and athletes are all aware of what the core is, but the... The pelvic floor is actually a very important part of the deep core. And so I think we're probably going to talk about that a lot today. Um, yeah. And it also plays. I don't think people think pelvic floor when they think. I don't think core. so either. I think the core is usually thought of as just the more the superficial abdominal muscles, you know, the semi muscles, but the, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> yeah. the core is really made up of, um, you know, a whole matrix or a canister of deep muscles, which we'll talk about in a second. But um you know, the, the pelvic floor also has a, a very important role in sexual activity and childbirth um, and in lymphatic drainage. And so it performs a, a lot of very, very important roles. Explain that a little bit, because actually that hits my ear as something new. I don't I didn't know that. Uh, the lymphatic part? drainage. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so the pelvic floor works in coordination with the diaphragm above it. And so if you picture the dia- or sorry, the pelvic floor as a shallow bowl at the base of the pelvis, the diaphragm is positioned at the base of the lungs and the base of the rib cage directly above it. And so the pelvic floor on the bottom and the diaphragm on the top work in coordination with one another in the sense that when someone takes a deep breath, when I take a deep breath, my diaphragm, when it's at rest, has a gentle upward domed position. And when it contracts, it flattens down and out. And so it, it exerts a pressure down into the abdominal cavity and down into the pelvic floor. And so the pelvic floor needs to be able to, if it's working properly, accept that pressure and bulge downward gently. And then it recoils and it provides a gentle pressure upward. And so when the pelvic floor and the diaphragm are working well together, they, they form kind of a gentle pistoning motion. And that's happening at rest. It's happening. It should be happening to some degree all the time that they have this coordination. And through that gentle pumping mechanism, it helps to move lymphatic fluid through the abdominal cavity. Wow. Okay. So for, to take that one more step, that's important for immunity. 
and general well, health, yeah. right? I yeah, mean, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that, there's a lot going on there. That's, that's a very important, that's a very important piece of our anatomy that gets, that gets overlooked. Um, can you talk a little bit specifically for our audience, what happens to the integrity of the pelvic floor as hormones change, you know, going into, I mean, some of our listeners will have children, some of them Mm -hmm. won't, but like, I'm imagining that over the course of our hormonal life, there's something that ha- must happen to the pelvic floor, irregardless of yeah, there is your family. Yeah, there, yeah, definitely. I mean, there, yeah. like you said, there there are some big factors that influence the integrity of the of the pelvic floor and the surrounding structures. Um, one of those is childbirth, but if we kind of start by talking about menopause, which I know this this show is is mostly focused on, there's actually a little bit of disagreement about exactly what happens to the pelvic floor itself during menopause. And so obviously there are the, you know, the obvious hormonal changes that occur um, when a woman is in menopause or perimenopausal when they're uh, going through the initial uh, changes associated with menopause. Um, But the reduction of estrogen um, that that occurs during menopause reduces collagen levels in our body. This is probably one of the changes that people are more familiar with. Uh, and collagen is just a, a fibrous protein that has very good tensile strength. And it's present in a lot of the tissues in our body, right? So it's present in ligaments, which attach bone to bone. It's present in tendons, which, which attach muscle to bone. It's in our skin, our bones, cartilage, etc. So it's very, very prevalent. And type 1 collagen, uh, which is primarily responsible for the tensile strength of a tissue, has been observed to decrease uh, somewhere around 70 to 75% in menopausal women. Whoa. And that happens over time. And there's that's a big, that's a big decrease though. That's mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, this specifically can affect the, or especially affect the ligaments, uh, in the abdominal cavity. And so our organs are not only supported by the pelvic floor muscles, but they're also supported by ligaments. And so when those ligaments uh, start to lose some of their tensile strength and their integrity, there is more uh, being asked of the pelvic floor to help to support them. And so that's definitely a change that we see. And those muscles are not equipped to do they're all not, that. They're not equipped to do all of it. They should be helping, but they cannot be the only line of defense, if that makes sense. Right. Is that why they get weaker too? Well, I mean, that's where, that's where some of the research uh, disagrees. Um, there are definite changes in the strength of the pelvic floor muscles over time with aging. Uh, there's not consistent, uh, consistent evidence, though, to show that the integrity and the strength of the pelvic floor muscles changes in, in a response to menopause itself. But there are changes that occur over time um, due to aging. And of course, those are very, those are very hard to, to differentiate, right? Those are hard to tease out. Because <laughs> it's all happening at the right, same time. Right. Um, however, we do know that there is, that, that people, that women um, exhibit a decreased uh, adaptivity, or uh, the a decreased ability to adapt to exercise when they're in menopause. And so if someone is trying to improve the strength of their pelvic floor, for example, you know, I would expect the timeline to be a little bit different for someone who's in menopause than for a woman who's uh, premenopausal. Right. 
So though it's never too late, this is also a good reminder mm -hmm. to build strength while you're most receptive to it, you know, right? Yeah, like absolutely. The earlier better. Like if you're in perimenopause or not quite mm -hmm. in the big, you know, larger parts of the change yet, this seems like a good idea to really pay attention to the pelvic floor along with the rest of your muscles yeah for sure um but i mean i don't want to give the impression that that changes can't still occur when someone's in menopause because i i have worked with many women yeah who yeah, yeah menopausal yeah. and you know they do very very well with the right type of intervention at the right time so i mean yep. it's certainly okay. not a closed door by any means right 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 <laughs> yeah and i wasn't trying to imply so to speak i wasn't trying to imply that either i was just make just like a little sometimes i like to drill it home a little bit like it's you know sooner you start the better it is no matter where you are yeah yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah um yeah so and i mean and there are a couple other changes that happen with uh, menopause as well but i would say that those are really the you know the ones that pertain to an athletic audience or if we're talking about um athletes and training in particular though those are the ones that we're probably going to talk about the most but there are other changes to you know for example the integrity of the urethra which carries urine from the bladder out when we go to the bathroom. Um, it also loses some of its elasticity and uh, the sphincters that control the flow of urine um, lose a bit of their ability to exert closing pressure on the, on the urethra. Uh, but again, it's not exactly understood how estrogen influences that. It's just been observed. So, so I wonder if that's because when, when I was doing some background research, it was a little confusing, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, because, you know, I found some indication that moderate physical activity, you know, meeting your minimum requirement kind of things, decreases the risk of urinary incontinence. But female athletes, one bit of literature said were about three times more likely to have urinary mm -hmm. incontinence compared to non-athletic peers. And I was wondering if that has to do with the intra-abdominal pressures that you were talking about combined with the pelvic floor changes or... Can you shed some light on yeah. that? Because we're a pretty active Yeah, bunch for sure. I mean, I think I read through those, those um, studies that you're referring to, and they are very confusing. And I think part of the confusion is that uh, neither one of those studies is really talking about what normal pelvic floor function is. Uh, and I think it's important to first describe that normal pelvic floor function does not mean that the pelvic floor is only strong. What's actually more important is the pelvic floor is coordinated with the rest of the muscles that make up the deep core and that it's firing at the correct time. And so one of those papers you sent me, um, I think was measuring, uh, the strength or the, uh, the strength of the integrity of the pelvic floor by either the stiffness or the amount of muscle bulk there was, the hypertrophy of the, of the muscle. Mm -hmm. But that's not, to my knowledge, that's not uh, an indication of normal pelvic floor functioning because you have to look at the whole system and how it's working, right? So, I mean, right. I think we should back up then and say that if the pelvic floor on the bottom of the pelvis is working in coordination with the diaphragm above it, it's also working in coordination with the other deep core muscles to form this functional canister, right? And so if the diaphragm okay. makes the top of that canister and the pelvic floor makes the bottom, the muscle that runs around the sides and the front is the transversus abdominis, which is the deepest muscle in, like I said, the sides in the front of the abdominal cavity. And then the back, you have the multifidi. And those are the small, short muscles that run between 
one to up to a couple um, uh, different levels of the spine. And so all of those muscles together need to work in coordination uh, so that they can manage the pressure inside the abdominal cavity. Gotcha. And so if, uh, so if we talk about, you know, athletes that are uh, experiencing a lot of intra-abdominal pressure, uh, runners and jumpers, athletes that are jumping and running, um, and if we talk about crossfitters, uh, are experiencing a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. Uh, weightlifters and crossfitters are uh, experiencing a lot of intra-abdominal pressure, but they're typically seeing higher spikes uh, in lesser number, less repetitions, less number of movements, right? Whereas a distance runner has to may, has to control against the intra-abdominal pressure every time they take off from the ground and every time they land on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And so it becomes much more of an endurance issue for them. And so if you think mm -hmm. about that canister again, then if the pelvic floor itself is doing its job and the diaphragm above it is also doing its job, if there's another weak link in the canister, then that pressure is not going to be managed uh, effectively. And so let's say the transverse abdominus is weak and that's the weak link, mm -hmm. the weak wall of the canister and all the mm -hmm. pressure is being pushed out against mm -hmm. that weak wall. And so we first need to identify, uh, is the entire system working appropriately? Okay. And so the system working appropriately really means that the pelvic floor and the diaphragm are uh, working in opposition to one another. They're coordinated. And it also means that when somebody initiates a movement, so for a weightlifter, that could be right before they begin their lift, that those deep muscles are fire in firing in anticipation of that movement. And so they're not firing late, right? right? And so they need to fire and they need to create um, stability by increasing the pressure inside the abdominal cavity before the movement occurs. And for a runner, that needs to happen on a low level with every impact, with every foot start. Right, right. And so that coordination piece is really, really key. Interesting. Um, and so, like I said, it's not just a matter of the, um, the pelvic floor being strong, but it's a matter of it being coordinating and firing at the right time. And so then back to your question, um, why are female athletes experiencing higher rates of this problem of urinary stress incontinence? I mean, the demands of their sport are also much, much higher than, <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's the a demands good point there. <laughs> of uh, someone who, you know, potentially walks 30 minutes a day for exercise. Right, right. No, that's a that's actually an excellent point that I can't believe I didn't even think of. Yeah, if you're running a fifty k ultra or whatever, you've got way more opportunities yeah, exactly. to experience. Yeah. And a lot of you know, I mean, a lot of runners may not um, may not experience symptoms until you know an hour or nine, even ninety minutes, two hours right. into their activity, if they're a marathoner or an ultra runner. Right. Yeah. And so it's a very different scenario. Can you define stress incontinence? I mean, it seems pretty self-explanatory, but just for the, just yeah, for for the sure. audience. So uh, urinary stress incontinence, because that's much more common and really what we're talking about, um, is the involuntary leaking of urine uh, in response to the increased intra-abdominal pressure. And so that intra-abdominal pressure could increase, is going to increase when someone laughs or coughs or in the context of running every time they hit the, the ground or right. take off from the ground. Right. 
And, you know, that's only one type of urinary incontinence. So there are other types as well. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the type that's often talked about in the context of athletics. Right, right. Like people who don't want to jump rope or don't necessarily want to do some of the activities in whatever class because mm -hmm. they might leak, right? Oh, that's exactly. what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, some people almost call this normal. Would you call this normal? No, I would definitely not okay. call this normal. And I think that's, um, that is a huge misconception that uh, people who work with this problem are always fighting. That uh, although it's very, very common, urinary stress incontinence is very common, it's never normal. And so it is a, it's a very clear sign that there is dysfunction somewhere, somewhere in the system, somewhere in the chain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning too that uh, urinary stress incontinence is not always um, due to a problem with the pelvic floor itself. So I mentioned it could be also due to weakness or weak link in another part of another wall of that canister, like the transverse abdominis, for example. Mm -hmm. It could also be um, a secondary symptom to a weakness elsewhere. So it could be due to a weakness in the hip musculature, for example. And so it could be that there is a weak link in the entire chain. And so if we look at an athlete, a runner, as, uh, and, you know, as, as someone who's performing a very complex movement, it requires more than just strength and coordination of the core, but it also requires symmetry between the two sides of our body. It requires a certain amount of mobility, a certain amount of strength and fitness. And if someone lacks one of those things, if someone lacks, let's say, uh, strength in one hip, and every time they land on that mm -hmm. leg, their pelvis is collapsing over that limb, which, which is, is very common, common right? Yeah, like a super common running yeah. uh, problem that runners experience. It might be that the lack of stability in the hip musculature places an increased demand on the core muscles. And now someone's symptom might be that they're leaking, but it actually might not be a problem with the pelvic floor itself. And that would be... So you could do Kegels till the yeah. cows come home and you're still exactly. going to have Exactly. Yeah, you're okay. reading the mic. And that's exactly right. why I mentioned that because there are, you know, I've treated a number of, of women with urinary stress incontinence that are runners and they mm -hmm. may have been doing Kegels for years <laughs> without very good results. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and that's often the reason. I mean, it could be that they're just barking up the wrong tree. I mean, the pelvic floor is not the issue. The pelvic floor itself might be uh, much more strong than average because it's been having to compensate for some other dysfunction down the line. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So that, that just adds this layer. So uh, like, is this the kind of thing, if I'm having this issue and I'm out running, I, you know, I'm an ultra runner or a marathon or even just 10K, I mean, it can happen anywhere, right? Is this something that I can self-diagnose at all or do I need to see someone like you to figure out what's going on? Like if I'm doing Kegels and all this kind of stuff and mm -hmm. I'm still leaking, does that mean like, what do I do? Who should I like, where, what's next? <laughs> yeah, that's at? a great question. Besides buying like yeah. <laughs> liners, you know, or the special yeah, panties yeah. that... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I th uh, it, it's a very easy problem to diagnose because the, the diagnosis for, you know, all of those different scenarios that I, uh, that I just mentioned are, is urinary stress incontinence, but the reason for it is very different. Mm -hmm. And so it, mm -hmm. so it could be very right, easy right. to diagnose, but very difficult to treat. 
uh, or maybe not difficult, but just need to be identified by the right person. What are the underlying causes so that it's treated correctly, I should mm -hmm. say. Who would I even see? Like, that's like the first, that's a very complicated, like, it's maybe easy for you if once <laughs> I find you, but like, how do I find a person who I, if I can say, okay, I'm leaking pee sometimes when I run and one person says, well, that's kind of normal. You should buy some panty liners or whatever. Like I go to the next person and then I say, hey, this is really a problem. Like, who do I actually talk to that might be able to say, oh, your hip is like this or your inner, you know, your the transverse abdominis is weak. Like, where do I go? Yeah. For so that? pelvic health physical therapists are really, I, are really the, the people that specialize in working with this dysfunction. And so, okay. you know, this is something that can be screened for by a number of people. And so um, OBGYNs uh, should be screening for this. Uh, any medical professional, any physician who is uh, interacting with patients uh, is, is a, in kind of in the first line of, of contact with patients can be screening for this with the right types of questions. But the people who are really going to treat urinary stress incontinence is typically going to be the pelvic floor or the pelvic health physical therapist. Okay. Okay. And then t to talk me through a little bit, like I'm very curious, like if I came into you, <clears throat> what kind of screening would you do? Like what would you look at? Yeah. Well, with this type of, with this type of um, uh, dysfunction, getting a really good background history is, is probably one of the most important things. And so really understanding the behavior of the problem. And so like I mentioned, there are different types of incontinence. And so although you might be coming in with a symptom of leaking urine when you're exercising, that doesn't automatically mean that you have urinary stress incontinence. It could mean you have a different type of incontinence. And so the first most important step is really understanding the behavior of your symptoms, how long it's been going on, for example, who have you seen about it, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what have you tried, really a really uh, in-depth background history. What other kind of your <clears throat> urinary incontinence might I have if it's not stress? Yeah, so uh, urge incontinence is another common type of incontinence. No. Oh. That's common in menopausal and perimenopausal women it's, too. It is, yes, it is, yep. And so urge incontinence is the, the sudden urge to urinate even if the bladder isn't full. And so it can mm -hmm. be due to a couple different um, things. It, I have this before every race I do. Is <laughs> that just, got, is that just It could be nerves too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Like I walk out of the porta john and I sometimes circle right back out and I go back in it and I'm like, I know yeah. I'm empty and then yeah. I have to self-talk. But are you leaking? That's the difference. <laughs> well, no, no, no. <laughs> so it's only a problem yeah. if you're leaking, okay. yeah. Um, well, I shouldn't say okay. that, but in this context, yes, it would be an issue if you're leaking. So, I mean, someone could have urgent incontinence because uh, the nerves that allow someone to sense when the bladder is full uh, are not working properly. Uh, it could be due to bad habits, for example. And so what I mean by that are, is that if someone uh, has gotten into a routine where they go to the bathroom on a very regular basis, let's say someone works in a profession where, you know, the, let's say they're working in a hospital, it's a very fast paced job. They don't have the luxury of stopping and going to the bathroom when their bladder tells them to. And so they anticipate that they go to the bathroom maybe at the very beginning of their shift and they might not go to the bathroom again until six hours later or whenever it's possible next. Right. 
And right. so what right. happens what happens in that case is um, in a normally functioning bladder, the bladder muscle, as it starts to fill with urine, it starts to stretch. And when it stretches to a certain point, it starts to send a signal to your brain saying, okay, the bladder's full, you could go to the bathroom now. And so when you get that first signal, that doesn't mean you have to go right that second, but you will get increasingly urging, <laughs> urgent messages saying, okay, it's time to go to the bathroom now. So if, if you're uh, in a situation where you are going to the bathroom at a certain time every day, just because that's your convenient schedule, but it's not what your bladder is actually telling you, that feedback loop can become disrupted. And instead right. of... That's why people tell you to go when you have to really go. And so and if that just... feedback loop gets disrupted and all of a sudden your bladder is not telling your brain what to do, but your brain is telling your bladder what to do, you might start going to the bathroom um, at times that are associated with certain triggers. So for example, you may That's not go to the bathroom during your entire shift at the hospital, to use that analogy or that example. You might go mm -hmm. to the, wait until you get home and your key is in the door and all of a sudden you have to go <laughs> really bad. <laughs> You're speaking because, because I, I think, I think that athletes can, can, or people who are at, like, I know so many women, I'm one of them. Like, you know, I, I, I did like a hundred mile race and I've got to go and I'm like, I can't stop. And then it seems to just go away. But then like the minute I stop, I'm like. I don't even know if I'm going to get my chamois down. Like, right? I'm like, I've got to go. Um, I think that's yeah. really common. Yeah, it is common. And um, yeah, and so, I mean, there could be a trigger like uh, like you finishing your run. Uh, it could be a trigger like uh, mm -hmm. putting the key in the door, and all of a sudden that's your external behavioral that's trigger. So interesting. Because the moment I step off my bike, I have yeah. to pee. Can I tell you? Like, and, like, and I think that that's that. just <laughs> that might. <laughs> That might be my trigger. <laughs> like all these years, it's just like, okay, you're off the bike now. Now do something yeah, exactly. about this. Yep. Yeah, And it could mean that you're clenching your pelvic floor when you're on the bike the whole time too, which is also not normal. Right, right. And that's why it's, I mean, you see men pee off the bike all the time. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's really interesting <laughs> that you can relax so much and just do that. But anyway, we're, 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 let's not get too far down this tangent. But that was a... Uh, that was interesting. So most of what you take care of is stress incontinence or is it both? No, it's definitely both. I would say in the, in the population of, of uh, patients that I work with personally, I see more urinary stress incontinence. Um, but I think that's also because I work with a lot of runners and cyclists and triathletes. And it's very common in that population. Right, right. Yeah. So then you take this great background history of me, going back to me, and then do you, mm -hmm. do you actually put me through some exercises just to check for some of that stuff that you're talking about am i doing planks what am i, am I doing wall sits what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah good question um yeah so my my first uh the first thing i want to do is is really assess if, if the pelvic floor is doing what it's supposed to do mm -hmm. and so uh as part of the external exam i'm going to make sure that everything that allows the core to work properly uh is in place meaning you're not very very restricted in movement somewhere, your rib cage and your spine is able to move appropriately, that you're not stuck anywhere that would mechanically inhibit you from even uh, recruiting a normal muscle pattern. Uh, and so that would involve analyzing your breathing mechanics, making sure you're able to breathe equally uh, through the right and left lungs and the right and left rib cage. That would involve making wow. sure that you're able to get breath into your lower posterior rib cage and you're not just breathing into your upper chest. 
which can be common in some, in some uh, athletes. It would involve uh, an internal exam as well. And so with an internal exam, uh, a pelvic floor therapist is really able to not only palpate the pelvic floor muscles directly, which gives clues to whether mm. those muscles have normal, what's called tone, which is just the resting state of the muscle, mm -hmm. or if they have trigger points, which they can develop just like any other muscle in the body. Wow. Um, okay. And so making sure that someone has normal resting tone, and then also assessing the ability for the pelvic floor to contract and relax. And what... What do you do with trigger points? What do you do with them? <laughs> I'm picturing trying... Yeah, I'm just picturing them. trying to use like the Theracane, like just put that up there. No, no preferably not. <laughs> okay, no, don't do that. I'm sorry. Everyone listening, I am not giving prescriptive advice. Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be one way to get... <laughs> to, to go down that road, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so, I mean, the, you know, if you think about treating a trigger point in your calf... Right, you would use a trigger point ball. You might use a foam roller. Yes. Um, you might have a dry needle. You might have massage, and so direct pressure um, to that trigger point until it releases is an effective way to do it. There is a way to dry needle some of the pelvic floor muscles externally, because some of some of those muscles that function um, that are actually part of the pelvic floor are also part of the hip. And so, for example, the obturator internus muscle is one of the external rotators mm -hmm. of the hip. It works in conjunction with the piriformis. Mm -hmm. And those muscles are actually also part of the pelvic floor. And so if I palpate them and I feel trigger points, I can dry needle them externally as well. Gotcha. So we check for normal resting tone. Uh, and then we check to see if the pelvic floor is, is coordinated well. And so is it moving uh, reciprocally with the diaphragm or is it moving paradoxically? Is it doing the exact opposite of what it should be doing? Right. Am I, mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. the client, when the patient inhales and breathes in, is their pelvic floor contracting? In which case it's doing hundred percent what it shouldn't be doing. And so at right. that point you start to really discover where the, where the issue lies, right? It could be that this client, this athlete presents with uh, tightness and trigger points in the pelvic floor. And it could be as simple as restoring normal tone to the pelvic floor, and then the pelvic floor works perfectly normally. Maybe it's able to contract and relax, but for whatever reason, it developed trigger points. It could be that it's not coordinated well with the diaphragm. And so maybe it's a matter of finding the right type of feedback that that client needs so that they can feel the pelvic floor move with the diaphragm. And maybe it's just retraining it at rest. Maybe it's as simple as that. Or it might be something higher level. It might be, it might be the type of situation where, um, for example, someone has good pelvic floor strength, um, but they have very poor glute medius strength, right? Yeah. That's so common. that's common. And that would lead to the scenario where someone lands on one leg and their pelvis collapse, collapses over that hip or they get a pelvic drop, right? Right. And so in that right. scenario, it could be that their glute medius muscle is strong enough to get them through, let's say, 5K. But if you ask that... Mm -hmm. Those are the outer yes. glutes, correct? Yeah, exactly. So that's, the, those yeah. Muscle, that's the muscle on the outside of the hip. And so mm -hmm. maybe that muscle is strong enough to get them through 5K of running with good enough mechanics. Mm -hmm. But then if you ask that athlete to run a 10K, you know, maybe at seven kilometers... Uh, the wheels start to fall off and then she starts to leak. So it's a matter of really identifying what the weak links are.
And then you mm-hmm. just give appropriate exercises, right? I mean, is it that simple? Um, yes and no. <laughs> it's, it can be that simple. I mean, in some cases, it can be as simple as identifying the, the weak links and then figuring out how to change them. And so that's, that's where the, individual, uh, the individuality of the program comes in. And so it has to match up with the, uh, with the patient's lifestyle and their time availability, right? If this is someone who is working 12-hour days, uh, maybe five days a week, you know, you have to figure out a program where they can do a little bit of something every day or they can just integrate something simple into their day so you can see a lasting benefit. It might be that someone can, is, comes in with that uh, scenario where they have increased tone, they have trigger points in the pelvic floor, and you treat those trigger points, they feel great, they leave, they come back one week later and they have those trigger points again. And so that's a scenario where you have to start looking at, you know, what are they doing throughout the day? You have to have a good understanding or have to have a good understanding of how are they using their body? What else is contributing to those trigger points? You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are they someone who has a lot of stress in their life that they're not managing well, for example? And because the pelvic floor uh, tends to uh, contract mm-hmm. in times of stress, the same way that we tend to clench mm-hmm. and grind our jaws in times mm-hmm. of stress and our shoulders get tense and we develop trigger points there. Mm-hmm. This person could be clenching their pelvic floor in a time of stress. Interesting. And so if those, if I'm treating this person and yet they keep coming back looking the same and I'm just not seeing any, any change from week to week, then it could be something else entirely driving the, driving the process. Wow. And so then we need to, you know, try and find the right person to help them with whatever is under stress, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are there, are there exercises that we should all be doing to help not develop these issues to keep us strong and balanced and keep that whole pelvic canister, the, the whole thing nice and balanced and strong and able? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's a good question. It's a tricky question to answer. And I, I used to think yes, but <laughs> I've, I'm increasingly thinking no. <laughs> Um, I would say that the the best thing that we can all do are um, for our core, for our pelvic floor, mm-hmm. would be breathing exercises. Okay. Uh, I think it's um, there's a very very low risk uh, in doing breathing exercises. I think it's a much lower risk exercise than doing even Kegels. To to be honest with you, because if someone has trigger points, if someone is a pelvic floor clencher in times of stress, and that's kind of their pattern already. If you ask them to do Kegels, they're just going to get worse. <laughs> right. That makes sense. Their leaking yeah. might get worse. They might develop pain. Interesting. Um, they, okay. might, they might have pain with intercourse. You know, it, it could really go down. They could really make them worse. And so identifying what category uh, that person fits into and what their presentation is, yeah. I think is really paramount to any, any prescriptive exercise program. But coming back to the breathing, I would say that is very safe for everyone. We can all do breathing. And a position that um, I have many, many of my uh, patients work in is in child's pose with a pillow uh, underneath the belly, between the belly and the, and the thighs. And so their back is really in a rounded, uh, flexed position. Mm-hmm. And then focusing on breathing into the lower outer ribs in that position. Okay. And I'd say that's, um, that's good general advice because not only is, um, not only is 
deep breathing, uh, helpful for modulating the, uh, the neurological system and decreasing stress. But it also forces us to breathe into an area of the rib cage that we don't often breathe into if we work in a seated job, for example. Um, when we're under stress, our breathing becomes more shallow. If we're sitting, we, we often tend to breathe more into the upper chest. And so going into child's pose and breathing into the lower posterior ribs, so the lower back ribs and the lower outer ribs, right, right, is a really nice way not only to um, make sure the diaphragm is driving the breath, which is so important for everybody, but to increase the, the mobility of the rib cage. And so doing something like that can really make the back feel much, much less tight in general if you're someone who struggles with tightness. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you can do that at the end of the day easily, right? I mean, that's something oh, you yeah. can start or end your day with pretty easily. And you just want to feel your rib cage expand all the way down your back is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. You can even put your hands on your lower outer ribs, mm -hmm. and you're, you're looking for the diaphragm to expand out into your hands. Gotcha. Rather than up into your chest towards your chin. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's, uh, that seems to take care of a lot of, check a lot of boxes that I, right? I think a lot, yeah, a lot of people deal with. Is there anything and else? I think it's, well, I was going to say, I think it's easier to convince runners to do that than to stretch, which they're never going to do anyway. A hundred percent. But in that position, when you're doing that diaphragmatic breathing, um, if you're so inclined, you should be able to feel the pelvic floor moving in coordination with the diaphragm. And hmm. so if I were working with a client, you know, those would be my uh, instructions to the lay person. But if I were actually working with a, with a patient, I would ask them to make sure they can feel the pelvic floor bulging downward, descending downward as they inhale. Interesting. Okay. And then recoiling back up as they exhale. Do you, do you find that people can sense that? that I mean, I, working with people over the years, I've noticed that some people just have way better proprioceptive sense, you know, just a better mind muscle connection, period, you know, they, they can mm -hmm. fire things ahead of time. And they, 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 they know, and not everyone has that. Do you find that some people have a disconnect? Or is that something that pretty much anyone could feel because we are sort of used to being somewhat in tune with those muscles? Because when we have to pee, because when we, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I actually think that people often struggle to feel this correctly. And okay. I, think this is, I think this is why um, cues to engage the pelvic floor when we're in a group class, for example, if we're doing Pilates or yoga, mm -hmm. um, can often miss the mark, not because they're not good cues, which right. they typically are, but because people don't have a sense of, of what they should be doing. Right. Um, so I actually find the opposite. I, most people uh, have very, very poor awareness of the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. um, where it is, what it does, uh, and uh, have a very poor ability to feel it as well. And so that's, that's one of the biggest struggles initially is to find the, the type of feedback and the position that works best for a client so they can feel what they're supposed to feel. Because that really is the first step is to have awareness. Because otherwise, they don't know if they're doing something correctly or incorrectly. I'm not going to be there to monitor them. And so it's really, you know, teaching them to, to feel and recognize it within themselves. And then they can, I can help them build off of that. Yeah, I've heard some cueing, like someone once talked to me about an elevator maneuver, and I'm not going to remember mm -hmm. exactly what it was, but it was, it was more prone to so on your back. And mm -hmm. you were supposed to sort of 
pull in like you're lifting your pelvic floor sort of like elevator style, but I can't, mm-hmm. like I'm sort of butchering all the, the cues, but. Yeah, was, no, I mean, that's definitely it. Yeah, it was the same thing, just trying to get people that awareness, I think, sort of like yeah. hollowing out, lifting mm-hmm. up, you know, trying to get a sense of like what all these muscles are doing, like where's your diaphragm, where's your pelvic floor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, really, honestly, a lot of people have difficulty feeling um, or even using the diaphragm correctly. Right. right. And so doing sing. the two things, <laughs> yeah, doing the two things uh, together makes so much sense because, you know, if, if you're trying to get the, the pelvic floor to contract, for example, let's say it's, it's weak and it have, has difficulty even contracting. If you're trying to get it to contract, but someone can't breathe well with the diaphragm, then mm-hmm. you're... I mean, you're just going to be chasing your tail. Right, <laughs> you're right, not going right, to get anywhere. Right. Excellent. So I, I feel like that's a, is there anything else you think the, the listeners should know about what are, what are they looking for, where to go? I mean, I, th- I feel like this was a really good eye-opening discussion for me because honestly, I would never have imagined that anything but the pelvic floor was the culprit for problems, urinary stress incontinence or incontinence period. Um, so that was eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. I mean, I guess I would just say that um, the the more that we do in venues like this to bring awareness to what the pelvic floor is and how uh, clients can not only recognize problems um, within themselves, but also advocate for themselves, the better mm-hmm. that we're all going to be. Um, for example, you know, it is certainly within the uh, the scope of practice and within the realm of expertise for, gyne- uh, for gynecologists to not only screen, but also treat this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, unfortunately, what I uh, have seen a lot of, at least in the United States, is uh, a patient might come in, um, a client might come in experiencing urinary stress incontinence without any pain, without any other uh, significant uh, effects on their life. And uh, the gynecologist gives them a, a printout of exercises to do. And often that doesn't solve the problem because they haven't gone through the process of uh, identifying why that person is leaking in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I would just encourage um, athletes and anyone suffering from symptoms similar to this to advocate for themselves and request that they go to see uh, a pelvic floor therapist, a pelvic floor physical therapist on their own. And the gynecologist might be uh, open to sending them to one. They might already have some people they work with or collaborate Mm -hmm. with. Um, And I don't want to throw gynecologists under the bus because I work very closely with them uh, all the time. And they're a a very, very key part in the, you know, in the treatment and the collaborative treatment. But I, you know, it's just important also that patients advocate for themselves. And if they're not getting better, even with you know, advice to not give up and keep looking for it because this is often a, yeah, this is often a very easy problem to treat. Right. Right. That's great. That's great. So before, before I let you go, I I wanted, you had mentioned something when we were talking earlier before this interview about um, tissue elasticity changes during menopause and old scars and stuff that can become problems during these menopausal years that never even occurred to me. And I'd love to, I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I this is new information to me. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think what I mentioned is that uh, old scars can become symptomatic or, or can become problematic in menopause. Like episiotomies. I'm going to butcher it. Um, episiotomies. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> so episiotomies C-sections, and episiotomies. C-sections. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Or any old scar. 
Okay. Um, but in the context of this conversation, those are the two things that came to mind. And there's not a lot written about this, but I will say this is something I see very often mm-hmm. clinically. Um, and it's something that I've talked with other uh, pelvic therapists about, certainly, and I'm not the only one um, seeing this problem, is that the tissue changes, uh, the elasticity uh, of the skin decreases uh, in menopause, mm-hmm. and the elasticity of scar tissue decreases as well. And so what I often see are that patients who had either an episiotomy or a C-section that went untreated um, closer to when they deli- closer to childbirth become symptomatic uh, in menopause. And so if we take the example of a C-section, for example, um, that scar that runs across the lower abdomen uh, is directly over the transverse abdominus muscle. And if the elasticity of that scar decreases in menopause, uh, that scar can really restrict the free movement of the skin and the fascia over that muscle. Uh, And it has an inhibitory effect on that muscle's ability to contract. And that is something that's very, very easily um, treated. And so when the transverse abdominus is not firing well, knowing now that the, the TA is part of the deep core, it has a negative impact on the stability of the entire core. And so often these people will come in with uh, back pain or hip pain. And, you know, through an assessment, I might identify that their, their core is weak and more specifically their, their anterior uh, abdominal muscles, their transverse abdominus is not doing its job. So let's say it's not firing or it's firing late. It's not firing in anticipation of movement. And it could be that that scar is so tight and it's adhered down to the tissues underneath it that mm. it's not allowing for normal tissue mobility um, in that region. And so just treating the scar with the right type of scar massage ah. and taping and there are other things mm-hmm. that we can do to treat that scar. Over the course of you know anywhere from three to six weeks, we can see a huge improvement in the mobility of the scar itself, which then allows the muscle underneath it to contract normally right. and then to help restore the... Uh, the integrity of the whole canister, the core canister. Wow. I mean, because there's some women who have had multiple C-sections, right? They've, they, oh, yeah. two, three C-sections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those, I mean, those scars really, the, the closer to when that scar develops, um, it's treated, the easier mm-hmm. it is to treat. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that old scars can't still be treated and can't still right. improve. Right. Um, and so we can treat this, you know, I've treated scars that are decades past when they, you know, when they occurred. Uh, when the surgery was, mm-hmm. and they respond very, very well. Same with uh, the episiotomy it, scars? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and they're typically pretty small scars, but those scars uh, inhibit normal tissue mobility, so they can cause pain with intercourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can cause, for a cyclist, they can actually cause uh, localized pain if someone's sitting on mm-hmm. a saddle, if they're mm-hmm. sitting directly on that scar. And that's very, very easy to treat with uh, scar massage. It's something I, I treat, I show my patients how to do to themselves. And so oh, wow. they can do it at home. And yeah, they always do really well. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good to know. Other things that I would never have thought of. And I, and I imagine that women would never pinpoint their problems to that. Right? That's just like an old scar. Why would you think that that's causing any, any yeah, problems? Because exactly. it seems superficial. Like it seems like yeah. a superficial thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, you, I don't think a lot of people would associate back pain with a C-section scar from 30 years oh, ago. 
hundred percent. Yeah, that's really <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, this is this has been wonderful, and I really appreciate your time. I I guess I'd like to ask what the rate of success for someone is. Like, you know, if I am I if I'm having any of these problems, do is it most of the time fixable? I mean, can I get? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. That's the I, that's the the great thing about this is that um, if we talk about stress incontinence in particular, um, if someone is suffering from urinary stress incontinence and it's pure stress incontinence we're dealing with, they should respond very, very, very well. And so, the the patients who respond not as well are usually the patients who have. Uh, either a different type of urinary continence, mm -hmm. uh, or they have, let's say they might have some, uh, some structural damage to the ligaments that also help to support um, the pelvic organs. I mean, that might be a more complicated patient, but even patients with more complicated presentations um, still see great benefits. And if we consider how, um, how detrimental pelvic floor dysfunction can be on someone's quality of life, not, not only athletes, but on any woman or man that experiences pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm -hmm. um, the improvements in the results can be fantastic with treatment. Yeah, I mean, truly life altering. That's why I wanted to bring this up. I mean, you start to see just ads for you know, now you have to wear special underwear or now you have to like, and it's like, okay, is that where we're going? I mean, is that, cause it's kind of hard to do that when you're running, you know, through the Alps or whatever. So it's just like, it's nice to know that there's other solutions. Oh yeah. I think it's, I think it's incredibly positive. I think the, the bigger issue is that, uh, there's not a much, there's not enough attention being given to these problems Yeah, I and agree. there are not enough, uh, pelvic health therapists <laughs> to help yeah. with it. But the more we talk about it and the more the more that we can educate one another and we can educate um, patients in particular, mm -hmm. um, the better it's going to be. I mean, if we unfortunately, the United States healthcare system is uh, a bit behind other countries, <laughs> as you may have noticed. And, you know, it's standard of care for women um, postpartum to go to a pelvic floor therapist for an evaluation, whether they're having symptoms or not in many countries. And so in many countries in Europe and Australia, for example, it's routine that someone just goes through their pelvic floor checkup. They may not even need pelvic floor therapy. They have an examination to make sure that they, they don't. If they mm -hmm. do, they get mm -hmm. treated and their outcomes are fantastic. And so I think uh, a huge success would be if we can improve the um, not only the prophylactic care, the preventative care, mm -hmm. but we have systems in place where we advocate for ourselves and for one another to get checked out, to have an evaluation, even if you're on the fence, even if you're unsure if there's a problem or not, it's not going to hurt. It's only going to help in the long term. Well, that's our show. I, for one, have doubled down on my commitment to keeping my entire core strong. And after holding my pee on my bike for hours and hours and hours on end and rewiring my brain not to go when I need to during all these years of racing long distance, uh, I'm trying to do that not so much anymore. And I'm trying to listen to my bladder more frequently. And for the cyclists in the crowd, do you know what helps? Drop tail bibs. They're the shorts that allow you to drop the back so you can heed nature's call without undoing the straps up top. 
So if I'm going on a long ride, especially now when it's getting colder and you have to pee more frequently, I wear shorts that allow me to dash into the trees for a quick nature break without having to take off my jacket and my jersey and my vest and all that, all the stuff that can sort of discourage you from making a nature break stop. And it really, really helps. Um, So check those out. And you can also find more out about our guest, Chloe, at her website, Chloe Murdoch. PT.com. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. And again, if you have questions or topics you want me to cover, I have an email. Hit play, not pause at livefeisty.com. Drop me a line. Tell me what you want to hear. I am all ears. And please keep those reviews coming. The show is growing fast. And you guys giving it reviews and sharing it on your socials is the reason why. And I'm super, super grateful. Thank you. Okay, so I will see you next week. And my guest will be the renowned fitness trainer, Amanda Thebe. She is also the author of the new book, Menopocalypse, How I Learned to Thrive During Menopause, and You Can Too. And man, I loved this conversation. Amanda's world was completely turned upside down when she hit perimenopause. She had migraines, depression, extreme fatigue, tons of doctor's appointments for two years before somebody finally told her, oh yeah, perimenopause. Her story is a stark example of why we all need to keep talking and we need to keep educating and women and especially the medical community needs to understand and communicate about menopause far, far more than we're doing right now. Amanda has plenty of hard-earned advice tons of wisdom. She's very funny and straightforward. I think you'll really like this one. Until then, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.